So this morning, we're starting off a sermon series for the Advent season on Christmas carols. I'm doing this for a couple of reasons. I'm doing this partly because uh, Christmas carols are a way of, of learning scripture that gets into your head more easily sometimes than scripture does. Uh, songs get into your head and stay in there, regardless of whether or not you would like them to. And that's that's that works for good and for bad. Um, it's bad when you can't get the marketing jingle out of your head, but it's good when there has been a song that has been intentionally composed to convey to us a story of scripture, and it gets stuck in our head. And that's one of the reasons that people have been writing religious music for a very, very long time now. For a lot of reasons, there have been more songs written about Christmas than almost any other sacred event. Uh, of course, that is rivaled by Easter. Easter would be more important than Christmas to us. And yet, there's something about the story of Christmas that so captivated people's imaginations and people's artistic imaginations that there was there were so many songs and so many carols that came about Christmas. So the, during the next several weeks, we're going to be unpacking the theology of some of these carols, the history of some of these carols, uh, the scripture with some of these carols. And then there's actually going to be one Sunday, the 17th, where we have a Sunday morning of nothing but Christmas carols. Uh, we're going to have it in the parlor instead of in the fellowship hall. For those of you who are here for the night of worship, you know that that's, it's a much more intimate feel. Uh, you hear the music a lot, a lot more clearly. And we're going to, we'll have a small devotional, but most of it is going to be singing and really hearing all of these Christmas carols that we've been talking about in the series. This morning, I'm starting with one of the oldest carols that is in our hymnal. <laughs> For this service, this is what a hymnal looks like. Uh, if you've never seen one before, we have them in all over the sanctuary. Uh, the oldest, one of the oldest hymns in our, in our hymnal is O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. If you look at the history, you can find a handful of different dates, but chances are it goes back as early as the 8th century, which if you think about it, that's a very, very long time for people to have been singing the same words. I did not think far enough in advance to actually bring in hymnals for you guys to look at, so you're going to have to just go with me. Although if you want to pull up the words to O Come, O Come, Emmanuel on your phone, you can look at them that way. The words to O Come, O Come, Emmanuel are based off of something called the O Antiphons, which were uh, pieces, small little snippets that were sung the seven days leading up to Christmas. That's why there are seven of them. And so if you imagine um, 8th century, some monks huddled in the cold in a, a cold stone chapel somewhere, singing the seven days before Christmas to get their hearts ready for Christmas, that's, that's the origin of these words. The O antiphons are drawn from prophecies specifically in Isaiah, although the prophecies really, it's drawn from biblical languages throughout the Old Testament, but the prophecies specifically in Isaiah referring to what God was going to do in Jesus that Christians have long interpreted as referring to Jesus. And so we have, O come, Emmanuel, our King and Lawgiver, the expected of the nations and their Savior. O come, Wisdom, who came forth from the mouth of the Most High, reaching from the end to end and ordering all things mightily and sweetly. O 
a man, O Adonai, and leader of the house of Israel, who appeared to Moses in the flame of the bush and gave him the law at Sinai. And then it goes on and on. There's seven of them. And if you read the first letter of each of the O Antiphons backwards in Latin, as you might do if you're a really bored monk, you come up with the phrase in Latin, tomorrow I will come or tomorrow I will be here. And so that's how the, then this became a classic Advent that you would sing right before Christmas. And so then it became in the tradition that you would sing these O Antiphons right before Christmas. This was rediscovered in the 19th century by a clergyman called John Mason Neal, who had a passion for very old hymns. Some people have passions for golf. Some people have passions for very old hymnology. And he would spend his, his days uh, just flipping through ancient texts of words and hymnals and tunes. And he sort of, he brought this back into the light. He gave it a different translation. And then he paired it with a tune that he found from a different hymnal which is the tune we all know. And what's fascinating about that is that the, the, hymnal that, the hymn that he chose to pair it with uh, was actually originally, to our best guess, a funeral hymn. And he paired it with this expectation, which is why we have this haunting, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, which, uh, which speaks perfectly to the season of Advent, which is at the same time joyful and waiting. And this is what I really want to get into, because this is what O Come, O Come, Emmanuel encapsulates more perfectly than I think any other hymn that we sing, is this conception that the promise of Christmas is that God is coming with us, and God will save us, and yet there are things that have not been accomplished yet. And we are in a season of waiting for those promises to be fulfilled, and yet we wait with the expectation that they will indeed be fulfilled. I want to read to you a little bit from Isaiah chapter 11, which is where the majority of some of this language is drawn from. It's drawn from a number of different areas but Isaiah 11, I'm sure many of you will recognize when I start reading it. This is where a lot of this language comes from. A shoot shall come out from the stump of Jesse. A branch shall grow out of his roots. A spirit of the Lord shall rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Does anyone hear the Messiah being played in their head right now? Um, this is... That's funny. I, I, was in, I was in one class, and they were reading this, and they were, they were saying, you know, this is from Isaiah, and someone said, wait, I thought Handel wrote that. <laughs> this is very, very common in Christian art because it, Christians have almost universally looked at this and said that, that points to Jesus. What I want to point out, a shoot shall come out from the stump of Jesse. The stump of Jesse means the tree has been cut down. The context of this is this is foreshadowing a time of exile, which was the greatest tragedy to happen in Israel's history. And yet, while it is foreshadowing exile, it is also foreshadowing the hope that will come after the exile. The tree will be cut down. There will be extraordinary grief. And yet, a shoot shall come out of the stump of Jesse. Hope will not be lost, even when it seems all hope is lost. And then it goes on. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear. With righteousness he shall judge the poor, decide with equity for the meek of the earth. 
He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt around his waist, and faithfulness the belt around his loins. Now Christians look at this and we say, that has been fulfilled. We have received that promise. Christ has come. The Messiah has come. The kingdom of God has been initiated. But what's interesting, read the next part. The wolf shall live with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the kid. The calf and the lion and the fatling together. And a little child shall lead them. So one right after each other, at least from a Christian perspective, we have the prophecy that we believe has been fulfilled and the prophecy that we are still waiting for. The wolf shall lie down with the lamb. Doesn't happen yet. Either literal wolves or human wolves, none of them, shall lie down with the lamb. The calf and the lion and the fatling together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together. The ox shall eat straw, the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp. The weaned child shall put its hand on the adder's den. They will neither hurt or destroy on my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. And we are in a period now where we are looking toward that prophecy. And boy, there are, there are moments when we see parts of it being fulfilled. But you know as well as I do that this is not yet the way the world looks. They are, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of God even as waters cover the sea is a prophecy we are still waiting to be fully fulfilled not one that we rejoice has been fully fulfilled. The earth is still filled with violence. The earth is still filled with sorrow. The earth is still filled with suffering. And you and I still have elements of brokenness within us that contribute to that suffering, even when we do not wish them to. This truth, this reality, that we are in an age caught between the already and the not yet is exactly what Advent speaks to. There is so much that God has already done. And yet, there is that which God has not yet done, that which we are waiting for, that which we long for. And Advent puts us in this place where we see what God is doing and what God has done, and we see what God will do, and yet it's not happened yet. We're still waiting. We're still yearning. And what do you do at that time when God has not yet fulfilled the promise God has promised to fulfill? Well, that is where O Come, O Coming Manual has a brilliant answer. I love the phrasing of this hymn because the first part of the hymn is a petition O come, O come, Emmanuel. And if you remember, Emmanuel means God with us. O come, O come, God with us. Ransom captive Israel. Bring us out of the captivity that we find ourselves in. Bring us out of the captivity that we find our world in. That mourns in lowly exile here until the Son of God appear. Naming the mourning and the weeping and the loneliness and the sorrow and the suffering and everything that I do not need to tell you is prevalent in the world all around us today. And yet, what is the very next line of that carol? It is not, wait here until God comes. The next line of the carol is, rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel will come to thee, O Israel. Now think about that for a second. 
It does not say, wait until the promise is fulfilled and then rejoice. It says, rejoice now because you know what's going to happen. Rejoice now because you know God is faithful. Rejoice before the promise has been fulfilled because you know the promise will be fulfilled. And your position in the in-between can and should be a position of rejoicing in what God will do even before he has done it. Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel will come to thee, O Israel. And this is repeated seven times with different petitions. O come thou wisdom from on high. Come thou dayspring. Come root of Jesse. Come Adonai. All of these different petitions. And yet, even as the songwriter names the sorrow that is in the world, the command to the singer is to rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel will come to thee, O Israel. And this is, I think, what sets Advent apart from all other seasons. You know, in Lent, we also focus on the brokenness of the world. We focus on our sin a whole lot. And there's not the command to rejoice during Lent, right? We're going to get that in Easter. But Lent is very much, you're not a great person. (laughs) You need to realize that. And yet in Advent, Advent is focused less on... Advent is, is a time to focus on, on what God has not done in, inside of us and, and our sin and repentance and all of that stuff. But Advent is, is so holistic about the nature of the world. Advent is this time to, to place ourselves where we are in the story, to claim what God has done, to recognize what God has not done, and yet to ground ourselves in the reality that our position now should still be one of joy because we know that God's going to finish the story. When you think of joy... The misconception 99% of people have is that joy needs be a response to prayer answered. And what we find in Advent, and particularly in liturgy like this, is that joy is not a response to answered prayer. Joy is the proactive practice that we have as we are waiting for the prayer to be answered. It is possible to rejoice even before you have received the object of your joy. It is possible to use the rejoicing, to use the joy within you, not as a response, as a gratitude, but as a means by which you connect yourself to a future that you know is coming. A a spiritual practice rooted in faith and faithfulness by which you place your trust fully in the future that is coming, even though it is not here yet. And it is a practice that is very different from the kind of joy you get after you receive. That joy is wonderful. The joy you get after you receive something is wonderful. And yet the rejoicing that we may practice during Advent is the kind of practice that builds our souls and molds our faith and makes us into the people who follow Jesus into his future no matter what. So many of you know that um, the, the side ministry I, I, I do called Gastro Church has done a fundraiser for every year on, uh, themed on Harry Potter. I, despite the fact that I grew up in that generation, I never read those books until we had to do this fundraiser and then I binge read all seven of them in a single month, which I don't recommend. But what I found in the books was um, 
what was was lovely. Like I understand why they got to be so popular. It's it's similar to what C.S. Lewis did and Tolkien did. It's this great kind of mythology of good and evil and light and darkness. And what J.K. Rowling does with the image of magic is very similar to what C.S. Lewis does with the image of magic. Is she plays with themes of morality and 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 all of these things. And she brings up um, of themes. This is why m many Christians get very curious with the book. She brings up themes that have parallels to how. Uh, Jesus teaches the spiritual world works. One of the most brilliant images she came up with is the image of the Dementor. The Dementor, for those, for those of you who have not been read all seven books, the Dementor is the bad guy, if you can't tell from the name. It is a spirit that wants to suck your soul out. So they are considered the guards of the, the wizarding prison, and they don't actually attack with swords, they attack with despair. So you can tell they're in the room because the room starts getting cold and you start to feel hopeless. So the way a Dementor attacks is he just makes you put your sword down and wanna die, or sorry, it's your wand. <laughs> put your wand down and want to die. And they come into the room and they suck the life out of people and the hope out of people. And it makes them not want to do anything. And that is how they conquer all of their victims. And the worst thing they could do, it could be called the Dementor's Kiss, which is actually where they come and suck your soul away. And you're left with just a life, uh, a body that's technically alive, but has no joy, no hope, no anything, and is just breathing. Now, you wonder how you fight a Dementor? The way you fight a Dementor is you cast something called a Patronus, which is a, a light. So like there's, you gotta go with me here. So you have a wand, <laughs> you, you cast this spell, the light comes out and the light will chase away the Dementor and the light will bring back the joy and the hope and the love. But you wanna know how you get the Patronus? You have to remember a time you were happy and grateful and joyful. And you have to pull up that memory within you so strongly that you can actually feel those feelings again. And so what she talks about is, you know, when these characters are getting attacked by the despair, they have to find a memory, a time that they were so happy and so joyful and so grateful. And they have to hold on to that memory. And then they have to cast that memory out. And it makes this light that then pushes away the despair so that they can be safe again. And I was reading that and I was like, oh, that sounds familiar. That is a brilliant, brilliant, I mean, obvi okay, obviously I do not believe that there are literal witches and wizards and all of these things out there, but that is a brilliant image for what happens during Advent when we know God has done so much, we see that there is some that God has not done, and yet we are choosing how to respond in the meantime. And there's this image. It is possible to ground yourself so fully in the memory of what God has done, to claim so wholly the knowledge of what God has done, that that brings within you a joy that will carry you through until the rest is fulfilled. Joy becomes a weapon, not a response. Joy becomes proactive, not reactive. Rejoicing is something we do to get through the darkness, not something we do once the darkness is gone. And what I want to say this morning is that as you go through this Advent season, guys, I pray your life is joyful right now, but if it is not, you are not without defense. And you are not without a weapon.
you can claim the words of this old funeral song, O come, O come, Emmanuel, rejoice, rejoice because he will. Rejoice now because God will fulfill what God has claimed to fulfill. Rejoice now because the promise God has made will come to fruition. Rejoice now because the darkness will be driven away. The people who walked in darkness will see a great light. And Emmanuel will come. And the lion shall lie down with the lamb. And the wolf, I don't even actually remember the, the wording of that. The wolf and the ox and the... All of the animals that aren't supposed to live together without eating each other live together without eating each other, and a little child shall leave them, and the earth shall be full of the glory of God, even as the waters cover the sea, and all of that will happen, and we needn't be in the darkness until then. We can rejoice it is coming because we can trust the faithfulness of God in the future because we've seen the faithfulness of God in the past. We can ground ourselves on what God has done and allow it to carry us toward the promise of what God will do. And when that day comes on Christmas Eve and Emmanuel comes again, our hope will be fulfilled once again, as we do indeed receive what we have been promised by God, and God is faithful. Would you join with me in a word of prayer? Almighty God, Almighty God, you have given us so much you have extended to us this extraordinary invitation. You have, you have fulfilled so many promises. You have shown up in so many ways. You have given us so many things. And forgive us when we give in to despair because you have not given us everything. Almighty God, teach us how to rejoice in the meantime. Teach us how to live in what you have done so that we can trust what you are going to do. Teach us how to be people of faith who stand on your faithfulness. Teach us how to wait well for the promises we know are coming. Come, Holy Spirit. Make us into people who rejoice this morning. This we pray as we say together the prayer our Lord taught. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.